And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges and chapter 2 as we continue our study through this uh, challenging but important book. And uh, just to reorient you, uh, the first two chapters and a little bit of the third chapter are an introduction to the whole book and sort of give us an overview of what's going to happen. And uh, we're going to get in much more detail as we go through the book. As we said uh, earlier, it's not a pretty picture uh, that's painted for us. And uh, here we get kind of God's perspective in uh, the first part of chapter 2 on the people's failures uh, to take the land as they were instructed to. So we're just going to read verses 1 to 6 of chapter 2 and uh, see this important word from God. This is the word of God. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohem and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down these altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And there will, in the reading of God's word, may God bless his word to his people as we consider it together this morning. Well, with uh, many of you children and young people uh, preparing for the end of the semester and your exams, as we approach the end of the term, I hope you understand uh, that the one person that you are trying to please is your teacher. At some level, it doesn't matter if your friends think you're really great and deserve a good grade, or even if your parents, I should say unless your parent is your teacher, but if your parents think you're great and you deserve an A, or even if you yourself are very impressed with your work and think you should get a good score, what really matters is what your teacher thinks. And I'm sure this is true for Ellen as she gives her senior recital. And uh, some of us may be there and we may think, this is amazing, and I'm sure we will think that. But at the end of the day, Ellen doesn't really want us to be the ones that are impressed. What she's concerned about is whether her professor thinks that she's hit all the right notes. So we have to understand who it is that we're really trying to please. And in life, uh, this can be a difficulty for us because we will all stand before the great judge of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, it's his approval that you need. It doesn't matter if your friends think you're great or if you're, uh, even if your parents think you're great, or if your children think you're great, or if your boss thinks you're great, what really matters is that you have the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for us to be confused about this and to be looking for the approval of others 
or even our own approval instead of the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to this passage, we're going to see the Lord coming to his people and rendering a verdict to them and telling them, hey, you may be happy with the situation, but this is my assessment. And that's the only assessment that matters. And while this can be a very challenging truth for us, there is also a profound note of hope mixed in with this passage. And so as we look at it, the main point is there in your outline. Remember that Jesus' assessment of you is the only one that really matters. So therefore, we we should rejoice that Jesus keeps his promises to us even when we fail him. That's where our source of hope is. And children, if you want to draw a picture, can you draw for me the people gathering together and then this word that they get from God and what's their response to that? And uh, listen for how we can learn from that. Well, uh, working through the outline that you have there in the bulletin, you'll see the first thing we want to notice is that Jesus' assessment of you is all that really matters. So we see in verse 1 of our text, then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now before we can understand what's going on here, we have to understand who this angel of the Lord is. And there's been some debate about this. Some commentators, because the word angel can be translated messenger, that's, the t- that's actually what the word means, that maybe this is just the word for a prophet. You know, God's often speaking to his people, maybe God's speaking through a prophet. And others have said, well, no, this is, this is an actual angel. It's just a run-of-the-mill angel, as if any angel could be run-of-the-mill, right? But uh, a spokesman for God who comes and gives the message. But I think you should realize that, that the scripture uses this term, the angel of Yahweh, Uh, 48 times in the Old Testament. So this is not an obscure figure. And when the angel of the Lord comes, he comes to intervene. He's coming as a mediator of God and he's acting. He's not only delivering messages, he's active. So for example, and we uh, we couldn't, we don't have time to survey all of these actually, but, but for example, he is the one who comes to Hagar uh, about her child Ishmael that she is to come. And Hagar calls him the God who sees me. That's who this angel of the Lord figure is, the God who sees me. Or this is the one who intervenes when Abraham is about to slay his son Isaac. And it is the angel of the Lord who comes in and stops Abraham at that key moment and then provides a sacrifice in place of Isaac. Or the one who appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And you see I've put uh, Exodus 3, 6 in your outline. And it says there that out of this voice out of the bush, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. So this angel of the Lord is referred to as God. Then he is also the one who appeared with a drawn sword to Balaam. Uh, Remember when uh, Balaam's donkey spoke to him, that's the story. And and that that, uh, terrifying figure with the drawn sword. Interestingly enough, not quite the same language, but similar language is used to describe uh, God promising his angel 
who will go before the people and lead them into the promised land and lead them through the wilderness and lead them to victory. And then, of course, on the eve of the battle's beginning, on the eve of the battle of Jericho, this armed man appears before Joshua. And Joshua says, yeah, whose side are you on? Remember that? And, and this, this angelic being says, no, as the commander of the Lord's armies, I have come. And then he gives him the instructions. And, and this all seems to be this same figure. Uh, this is also the one that we'll see later in the book of Judges who calls Gideon and helps Gideon and the one who appears to Samson's parents in Judges chapter 13. I put a couple verses from Judges 13 in the outline. And, and, and here you see it described this way. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. So, so understand here, this is a person that comes as a representative of God. He's distinct from God, and yet he is God, and he speaks the word of God. And I think the only way to understand this is that this is the second person in the Godhead. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming in pre-incarnation appearances before he's taken on human flesh and a human soul permanently. He appears and he acts on behalf of God. He's an active mediator in the affairs of God's people. And so this is the one who's coming to the people to speak to them about what they've been doing. And see what he says in verse 1. I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. This is the one who led them through the wilderness, who led them out of Egypt and led them through the conquest. And it's no accident then that this angel is said to be coming up from Gilgal. Again, a little history, but in the book of Joshua, Gilgal was the main camp. The people came across the Jordan River and they camped at Gilgal, and that was their headquarters throughout all of the conquest. And in fact, that was the place where Joshua saw the commander of the Lord's army, this angelic uh, heavenly soldier that he worshiped as God. And so this person, the Lord, is coming from Gilgal to this place. Most commentators think that they're gathered at Shiloh at this time, which is nearby, which is where the tabernacle was. And that makes sense because they're sacrificing. We see that in this passage. So they're at Shiloh. But they're going to change the name of Shiloh because it's associated with the tears that they shed when they get the news from the commander of the army of the Lord. So this is the place and this is the person who comes. And this is helpful for us to understand. We were reading in chapter 1 about how they didn't conquer this group and they didn't conquer that group and the iron chariots were too strong and this... And so all the excuse making and all the reasons that they can make on a human scale for not having done what they were told to do, told to do by God, the, the Lord comes and he says, this is my verdict on what you've been doing. And that's the only one that matters. Uh, Philip and I went to the men's life uh, breakfast, uh, uh, lunch, sorry, this past week, and it was fascinating uh, a young man who is an athletic trainer, trainer of, um, uh, for the um, 
IU sports teams spoke. And uh, 10 years ago, he was in a mountain bike crash and broke his neck. He was paralyzed from uh, the, the chest down and worked very hard to get back the use of his arms, but is still paralyzed from the waist down. And he shared with us the struggles he's been through and the lessons that he's learned. And, and it was genuinely inspiring and incredible. And yet at no point did he give credit to God or say that God had anything to do with his goals and what he's doing. And you realize that his story is impressive. It is impressive. The people hearing the story, they're impressed. Uh, his wife who stood by him through very difficult times, she's impressed. But at the end of the day, the only person that needs to be impressed is the Lord. And it's the Lord that's described here, this heavenly, all-powerful, all-knowing God of all. He's the one that you have to impress. And we understand, we can't impress him. All we can do is trust him and live for him. This is, this is what we can do. But our, our perspective is so often warped about what's really important in life. And this is a challenge to all of us, that the Lord's assessment of us, that's the assessment that matters, that the Lord says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So that is a helpful reminder to us. Secondly, we see here that the Lord requires your complete allegiance to him. You see in the second verse, he says, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Remember, his instructions were very simple. I'm going to help you conquer this land. You are going to act as my agents in, in judgment of these people uh, who, have, who have, have engaged in heinous sins. And I'm judging them and, and you are to not intermingle with them. And, and of course, this is because God wants them to serve him exclusively. And so they're not to work on assimilation. They're not to figure out how we can all just get along and be friends. And, and they're just to serve God exclusively, doing what God wants them to do. But what's God's verdict in the second half of verse 2? You have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? You've not done what I said. And it appears that uh, even at this early point, uh, right, that they're, 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 they're tempted into intermarriage, that they're not tearing down all of the places of pagan worship, and that they're, they're, they're trying to see if they can have some middle ground. Uh, commentator Barry Webb, this is in your outline, says, tolerance is a relative, not an absolute virtue. Whether or not it is good depends on what is tolerated. It's very helpful for our day and age. Tolerance is not some kind of absolute good. If we tolerate evil, then that's evil to be tolerant. And this is what they were doing. And it's important to remember that this was not some type of uh, ethnocentric pre prejudice that the people had. This is a religious issue. Uh, commentator Lawson Younger says, in other words, the harem, that's the ban, 
that's the call that they had to wipe these people out, was not concerned with the eradication of Canaanite clothing fashions, pottery styles, music, diet, or other types of particular cultural preferences, but it was deeply concerned with the eradication of the Canaanite religion, its idol, its God's idols, altars, rituals, divinatory practices, uses of magic, worldview, and so on. That was the issue. And now as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are obviously not called to literal warfare against pagan ideas and pagan people. This was a particular time in redemptive history and God had a particular use for his people in this task. And this is not your calling. But as a believer, you are called to be absolutely ruthless when fighting against sin and temptation and idolatry in your own life. You are not to be making alliances or assimilations. You are not trying to domesticate your sins and learning how to live with them. You must kill it. So so as we think about the things we struggle with, our impatience, our chronic anxiety, our tendency to seek the approval of others, our uncontrolled tempers, our lust, our laziness, our blame shifting, our critical spirits. We are to be at warfare against these sins in our lives and to, and to fight to the death. As John Owen famously said in his book, um, his book about the mortification of sin, you must be killing sin or it will kill you. And that was the situation the people were in and they had not done it. Jesus calls you and me to a ruthless intolerance of sin in our own lives. And far too often we justify it, we try to live with it. We're very good about pointing out the sins in the culture or the sins of other people and not nearly as active as we should be in fighting our own sins. And too often, right, the Lord could say to us, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Jesus requires complete allegiance to him. Thirdly, the consequences then of failing to serve Jesus are profound. Jesus says in verse 3, Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. This is a, this is a very harsh judgment in a sense. God had promised unqualified that he would give them the land. And, and the land would go from the Mediterranean uh, all the way to the Jordan. It would have been a huge land. And they wouldn't do what God told them to do. And then God said, I'm not going to do it. Matthew Henry says, thus their sin was made their punishment. You, you understand. They said, we really want to live with these idols around us and these idol worshipers around us. And God said, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And he said, it's gonna be like thorns. Children, you know, if you've ever touched a rose bush, how sharp and painful those can be. And so he's a constant reminder that around them are going to be these thorns. And, and this is a sad reality of what happens when we refuse to serve the Lord of glory. And it truly is tragic. 
you consider the fact that they had conquered, the book of Joshua tells us, 31 different kings. And now their progress is stopped because they were uh, unwilling to finish the job. Commentator Paul House says, this book describes what occurs when a covenant people forsake that covenant and do whatever each individual or tribe sees fit rather than following the revealed word of the creator of all the lands and all the peoples. And, and this is a very apt description of what happens in our own lives when we try to make peace with our sins. Uh, we decide we're satisfied with a certain level of obedience and then we're surprised. Why are we not making any pr more progress? Uh, we're willing to live with a sort of sporadic, infrequent devotional life and, and then we're surprised we're not making any progress in our devotional life. And, and, and many of us can fall prey to this kind of thing. We start out our Christian life with great enthusiasm and great fervor and then we sort of get comfortable and then we just stay where we are because it's easier to be comfortable. And uh, God warns us against this. And the warning's even stronger for those who would reject Jesus outright. Because as he says here, if, if we would say, I don't need you, Lord, uh, you, you want a life without Jesus, Jesus will give you a life without Jesus. And, and that means a life without any light, any hope, any purpose. And so the consequences of failing to serve this glorious one are profound. But note fourthly, that godly sorrow produces genuine repentance. And if you're following in the outline, I've changed that fourth point. And uh, perhaps I was too hard on these people in my, original, uh, in my original thoughts about this, but I've changed that fourth point to that godly sorrow produces genuine repentance. The people respond by weeping. They're deeply moved by this word, so much so that the name of this place becomes Bochim, which means weeping. And, uh, and this is a reflection of their sorrow and their response to come to God and worship, as it says in verse, um, verse uh, five, that they sacrifice there to the Lord. They worship him. And then Joshua dismisses them to go back to their places. Now, again, if you're following along, you would be saying, wait, I thought Joshua was dead. That was how we started in chapter one. So this is a bit of a flashback now, trying to explain from God's perspective, how did we get into this position? And, uh, and the reason I changed my opinion on whether the people, this people, were sincere in their repentance is because of what verse seven says. So the people serve the Lord, all the days of Joshua. Uh, this group seems to have been genuine in their sorrow over their sin. And of course, this is the question, isn't it? Are we sorry about our sin or are we just sorry about the consequences of our sin? Second Corinthians seven, verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So children, uh, I'm sure, well, I know, I know I'm talking to nearly perfect children, but I'm sure that most of you have been punished before by your parents. 
And so you're fighting with your sibling or you're teasing your sibling. And your mom says, go to your room. You're, you're, you're in isolation. You're, you're, you're on your own. And, uh, and you feel bad about that. You feel sad. And you might even say, I'm sorry. And, uh, and your mom might say to you, well, how will we know if you're really sorry? Are you just sorry that you had to go sit in your room by yourself? Or are you really sorry? And one of the evidences that you're really sorry is that you try hard not to do it again. And that it actually shows up in your behavior. That you, that you say you're sorry to God and that you ask God to help you not to fight with your sibling again in the future. And that's hard to do sometimes. But that's what genuine repentance looks like, that I'm fighting against my sin. Not that I'm just flippantly saying I'm sorry, or that I'm sorry because I've been punished. And this is something that is only possible with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I put in your outline 1 John 1, verses 7 to 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a word to Christians, to believers, to people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it says, if any of us claim that we're without sin, we're liars. But if we acknowledge that we're sinful, that if we confess our sins particularly to the Lord, he is faithful and just to purify us, to cleanse us, and to continue to help us to walk with him. And that's what we do when we're genuinely repentant for our sins. And here's something that we cannot fix on ourselves. We will never repent as well as we should have. We will never obey as well as we should but the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world and is perfect in your place. And if you're united by faith to him, then everything that's true of him is applied to you. And in God's sight, you are righteous. And the Lord continues to work with us and to help us. We won't be perfect until he comes again, but he's working to make us more and more like him. And so godly sorrow and, and for now, we're giving these people the benefit of the doubt here in Judges. The people come after them, not so much. But godly sorrow leads to genuine repentance. And that's what we need when we think about our sins. So finally then, though, the text encourages us that we need to rejoice that Jesus keeps his promises even when you fail. There, there is really very little to celebrate in the passage. But realize there's a profound note of hope here. Because in the first place, the Lord comes to them. He doesn't leave them just to go off on their own. He comes to them. And that in itself is gracious. The other thing is look at what he says in verse 1. He says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. That's the promise 
of the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I led you in here. You didn't obey me and follow me. I am not going to break my covenant. It sounds a lot like what we get in Hebrews chapter 13, where the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the hope of the gospel. Not that we are going to come through in the clutch, but that the Lord Jesus Christ has already come through and will come through. He will not break his covenant. And children, do you know what it means to be in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, That means you have put your faith in Jesus. You have taken him to be your Lord and he's taken you to be his child. And he says to you, I will never break that covenant. I will be your Lord forever. And that's, that's the source of hope for each one of us. As Jesus said in John 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand that's God's promise no one can take you from the Lord who has purchased you with his own life and so this vision this sets the table for the rest of this book because we are going to see failure after failure failure of epic proportions amongst the human saviors And all the while, standing in the background, is this glorious one who appeared many times in the Old Testament. But we can't imagine that the Old Testament saints fully understood who that person was. You and I live in the time where we know the New Testament tells us who this angel of the Lord is. He's come now as fully human, permanently human, and as God. And he is the one who promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never break his covenant with you. And my friends, if you look at the cross and you see your Savior there and what he did to save you, you know that you can trust him when he promises you he will never break his covenant with you. That's the source of hope. Too often... We are just like these people, making peace with our sin, serving God half-heartedly, making excuses for ourselves, not serving the Lord fully. But the Lord comes and says, your failures aren't going to stop me from loving you. And we can rejoice that we have such a Savior and such a Deliverer. Remember, Jesus' assessment is the only one that really matters and rejoice in the fact that he keeps his promises even when you fail him. Let's give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in what you've shown us here about our Lord. What an awesome picture of this glorious mediator from heaven coming to speak your word. The one who is God and man and who can faithfully represent us. And we thank you, Lord, that though we often are lax in putting to death the sin in our own lives, 
Jesus Christ has paid the price for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help our faith in him to grow. And we pray, Lord, that because these words are true, that he will never break his covenant with us. That we would trust you more fully, that we would live more faithfully as you want us to in the world. That we would put away our sins and our half-hearted service and that we would serve you faithfully. Give us grace that we might do that. We pray for any in our midst here who have never come into covenant with the Lord Jesus. Help us to see that we all must answer to this glorious one. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would come joyfully for forgiveness and for salvation uh, to the only hope for fallen human beings. Uh, Bless us, Lord, and help us even in this coming week to live in light of this wonderful promise that you will never break your covenant with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now let's sing back in praise to the Lord uh, from his word. We'll sing Psalm 119, selection G, uh, which speaks about God's promise as a source of our life. Keep your promise to your servant. I rest in the hope you give. This is my comfort in affliction, that your promise makes me live. You can count on it, that the Lord Jesus will fulfill his promises for you. Let's stand and we'll sing together.